BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. On this podcast, we talk about global real estate issues and hear from some of the decision makers in the industry. Today, we're hearing from Warren DeHaan, the co-CEO of Acor Capital. Acor is one of the biggest non-bank lenders in the country and originated $7 billion last year. They've got their eye on $10 billion for 2022, but Warren tells me in this conversation that the conflict in Ukraine is going to have knock-on effects that will play out in the real estate market. We also talk about the kinds of assets that may be at risk of foreclosure, and we talk about his views on what kinds of office properties he's interested in lending on and which he's not. All that in just a moment, but first, I asked him about where the big opportunities were in the last year. We saw a shift towards the darlings of the industry, multifamily built to rent, multifamily or just general multifamily, uh, repositioning multifamily, particularly in the southeastern states and Texas, where light rehab, ten to $15,000 a door going into the properties and repositioning the assets, obviously leveraging off of the strong job growths and wage inflation, and certainly sort of a broader move to rent versus own that we've seen across the industry. So strong demand characteristics. We also saw a lot of money flow to industrial. Industrial is a difficult sector to aggregate properties in because many industrial buildings are smaller in scale. So we saw a lot of portfolio related um, financings, um, but we know that a lot of our borrowers were chasing that sector. We also saw um, a record high interest in the biosciences, life sciences uh, space, both in the ground up development, repositioning of buildings and lease up, uh, particularly in the strong markets, those in and around Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, uh, and core markets for biosciences. The other sector that we've seen a lot of interest in is data centers. Now, this is obviously a specialized space, but we did see more transaction flow in that sector too. But I would tell you, the number one sector would be multifamily, two, industrial, three, biosciences. And then actually fourth, I would say was self-storage. We probably did close to a billion five in self-storage last year, which was way more self-storage than we've ever done. But, you know, the, the sector has performed very well. And for those buyers that fit the ACOR model, i.e. a loan size greater than 50 million, they were able to aggregate portfolios and we were able to finance the portfolios. So, That would be a shift from what we traditionally would have seen, which would would have been more office, um, followed then by multifamily, followed by hospitality. I would say that's resequenced and the flows of capital have gone into these asset classes that over the last 12 months have demonstrated very strong revenue growth associated with the prosperity in the economy, first and foremost, and secondly, demographic shifts. You also last year raised a billion to invest in distressed hotels. Uh, has that all been deployed and, and where did it go? You know, that was a fantastic idea in the beginning of COVID. We did do a couple of transactions of scale in that vehicle, but very quickly we saw particularly leisure-based hospitality assets rebound significantly, particularly those with inelastic demand characteristics, whereby to the extent price was increased, demand stayed fairly consistent. But we saw those assets particularly higher-end, leisure-oriented assets perform incredibly well. And whatever liquidity holes there were or liquidity problems there were were brought on by COVID were smoothed over by virtue of that prosperity. However, 
that doesn't paint the picture of the entire hotel sector at all. Business travel continues to lag uh, and is a question as to ultimately what percentage of demand comes back and to what level. The other sector that still out uh, remains to be seen, although we have seen some good performance and rebound is in the group sector, particularly in group sector where it's corporate travel as opposed to convention, uh, the large conventions, which we think will be the last sector to rebound. So in those regards where those assets have continued to underperform, we have seen lenders continue to provide forbearance to the borrowers, but also hand in hand with that, we've also seen the borrowers re-up by putting more equity into their deals, carrying them through these difficult times, and actually choosing not to seek recovery capital like the capital we raised for those reasons. So will we see some more opportunity there? I think we will see some more opportunity, particularly in those two sectors, group and business travel. But it, there really needs to be a catalyst. And the catalyst really needs to be that the lenders stop allowing forbearance or borrowers seeking higher yield money to bridge them to better days. A lot of the narrative over the last year was about how little distress there was, well, that turned out to be in the hotel market. And then in New York, for example, we're seeing a, a, quite a few deals of hotel selling at re really staggering losses. Do you think that that distress is now starting to hit in the urban hotel market? I think we're starting to see it. And I think what you really need to do is you need to separate out these markets. I think New York has struggled with a couple of headwinds, notwithstanding the fact that demand is is and has pretty much always been very strong in New York City. Your issue really is abnormal supply entering the market, the impact of Airbnb, particularly on compression nights, i.e. when the city used to fill up, you know, the Doubletree, which normally had a rate of 279 a night, was charging 650. And benefiting from those compression nights, that gets clipped off when Airbnb dumps 20% hotel supply on the markets during those peak nights. So that Doubletree now can't get that kind of rate. Maybe they can get 350 or 400. So it clips that. And the final point, a big headwind that has created some disequilibrium, if you will, in the economics of owning a hotel are the pressures that unions bring to bear on the economics of the hotels. So when you put all those together with an issue like COVID, you can see where, how New York um, disproportionately felt the pain. So what does that mean going forward, though? Um, there are some assets that investors are questioning their viability and their feasibility as an economic animal and have chosen to say, hey, this asset cannot actually cash flow positive under almost any circumstance, even though it's running 90% occupancy. That's an abnormality. And so what we are seeing in some of those assets that you've referenced is you're seeing buyers come in with the perspective to change the use to residential or some other use other than hotel. Uh, and we're seeing a couple of them trade at numbers that most of us would never have dreamt the dollar per key basis would have been that low. And that's really just driven fundamentally by these characteristics that when put together in totality, make some of these hotels uneconomic in the short, medium or long term. So with that $1 billion vehicle, you've still got money to deploy there, is that right? Correct. So where are you looking now? Where do you see the big opportunities now? The opportunity set that starts to present itself is a little different from the base thesis 
that we raised the capital for. The base thesis we raised the capital for was, hey, we have a liquidity problem, not a credit problem across the industry. And this liquidity hole is huge because notwithstanding the fact that these hotels are good hotels, you know, they're bleeding money and the sponsors continue to fund operating expenses, debt service, insurance, taxes, et cetera, et cetera, but they have no income. Now we're seeing more folks go back to hotels. The, the weight of that middle of COVID has been lifted for the most part and people are traveling again. So the opportunity set, as I said, has gone away in the leisure sector. We will see some of that in the corporate driven business travel dependent hotels and in the big group boxes. But as I said, the catalyst has to be lenders deciding that they're not going to forbear anymore. And the borrower's option then is they have to re-equitize the property, bring in equity or high yield debt like our fund. Now, the other opportunity that is out there is a rotation in capital structure. So um, capital was formed. These hotels were bought five or six years ago. The investors are at the end of their fund lives and they need to make a decision. They need to make a decision. Are they going to sell them? Are they going to re-up? Are they going to ask for extensions on their funds? Or are they going to then go out to folks like us and borrow higher yielding capital to bridge them to a better day? I think through the rotation of capital, we will also see opportunities. Aside from hotels, where else are you looking? What are, they, what are assets are attractive to you in 2022 to lend on? You know, I, I think that the, the, similarly to the equity side of the business and the public markets, the way in which these companies have performed in industrial, life sciences, data centers, build to rent, multifamily, particularly in the southeastern United States, have demonstrated incredible growth. Uh, you can take several of the markets. Tampa, as an example, has, has shown double digit rental, high double digit growth, 16, 17, 18 percent rental growth year over year in the last couple of years. That is tremendous strength. And again, a lot of this is driven by the broader well-being in the economy, record high savings rates, but also job growth. You know, we're almost at a very, very low percent unemployment in this country right now. Um, and secondly, we've seen strong wage growth. And what that results in is that in certain markets, it results in people, the affordability index goes up. In other words, more people can afford better quality multifamily. We have seen an overall shift towards rent versus own. And the owners of multifamily have really been beneficiaries, and that's proving out in the numbers. We also do a large amount of ground up construction or pre-agency financing in the multifamily sector, where we're a one-stop shop you know, construction lender up to 75% loan to value kind of thing with strong borrowers, great business plans. And we have a 10 person construction management team at Acor that enables us to be a very good lending partner to our borrowers and do it in, in, a, in a safe way for our investors. So we've been very focused in those sectors. The life sciences space has been very active. I would just caution folks on three things that, that concern me around the space. One is the quality of the credits. Many of these companies and these tenants in the life sciences space are flush with cash, but they're burning a tremendous amount of cash as they're trying to produce a product that ultimately, hopefully they get there, get it approved. But if they don't, they could burn through $600 million in cash in, in a few months. And so the headline of the quality of the credit sometimes can be deceptive. Two is new supply. You know, particularly in peripheral markets, which we won't lend in for life sciences, but 
we're seeing a lot of development in some of these markets that I would say are somewhat aspirational as it relates to life sciences. And because it's, it's a highly attractive sector and it's proven to, 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 to have great characteristics now, not all markets are made equal. And the third area that I worry about is strategy drift, where we see some traditional office developers look at that sector and go, wow, I should be the beneficiary of all of this. It's like building an office. But the problem is a regular office building might cost 500 bucks a foot to build. And you have the regular channels of brokers that you use to lease up your buildings. And these, these have been great borrowers and developers of those products. When they start to move into biosciences, it's a unique space. These buildings cost 1,500 bucks, bucks a foot to build. Their adaptive reuse, if it doesn't work for uh, life sciences, back to office is a disaster. And then thirdly is the knowledge of not only location, but the access to the tenant base uh, is a specialized area. So I, I do look at those opportunities and we are hyper-selective around who we will, we will finance. But overall, it's a strong sector, directionally correct, and we like being an active lender in that space. I haven't heard you say anything about office yet. And there are, there's plenty of Class B and, and, and some low-end Class A buildings in New York that have had a lot of trouble leasing. They're starting to see, you know, sub, sub-lease space on the market. I mean, how do you see office now? Office has always been a very large percentage of any lender's balance sheet uh, and what they do. So I'd say it's not a space that we choose to ignore, but it's a space that we choose to be hyper-vigilant in. So what have we seen? The, the difficult thing about office is that the change in behavior of consumer, broadly speaking, is still a work in progress. I, I think that there is a lot of uncertainty as to what consumption will look like in the office sector over the next five or 10 years. Okay, so with that as the backdrop, we are not making assumptions necessarily about what we think it's going to look like. What we are doing is we're, we're, we're looking at what's really happening. So what's happening in the major markets is we're seeing a flight to quality. We're seeing tenants choose to upgrade their space. They want better ventilation systems, better lobbies, better elevator banks. They want to keep their employees safe. Tenants also view this as an opportunity to upgrade at a discount into some higher quality space. And, you know, one Vanderbilt is the classic example in New York City of, of that anomaly. But we are seeing that play across the country in, in multiple markets where there's been this flight to quality. The other big area that we like are certainly the migration markets. You know, they have a great reason to exist. They have strong employer bases. There are many people moving to those markets. So, you know, the, the quality of the talent is there. The, the, the cost of living is lower than it would be, let's say, in Manhattan or in San Francisco. When you say and migration so markets, do you mean like Miami, Austin? Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, exactly. And we're seeing strong demand in those markets. So if you're going to make a bet on an office building, I would make the bet in those migration markets with the right quality sponsor at 65 or 75% loan to value with a solid business plan at the right basis. And we've been very successful at doing a number of those transactions. Now I'm going to tell you what we have real, a real problem with. So we have a real problem, and I'm sitting in New York City right now, but we have a real problem with the generic non-differentiated B-quality office building with low ceiling heights, poor window lines, poor ventilation, poor elevator banks, and small lobbies. We've seen rents in a lot of those buildings go from 75 bucks a foot to 50 bucks a foot, and then the lease terms get shorter and shorter. Does that get down to 40, 45 bucks a foot? 
maybe. Now, your other problem in New York City is, is that you have very high expense loads. So, you know, 25, 30 bucks a foot in expenses in the building. So what's happening is you're compressing the profitability of that particular building. And we haven't seen strong demand come in to those markets. We've seen increased vacancy and we've seen rents drop. So from a lender's perspective, I really don't have much upside. So for me, when I'm looking at those assets, it's impossible for me to calculate the downside. There, yes, there's a basis at which we'll probably lend, but I think we're going to see some pain in the bottom quartile quality office buildings in the major markets. So speaking of pain, there's been um, a lot of forbearance through this pandemic, a lot of understanding lenders, compassionate capital, I suppose, is one term, lend and extend, um, you know, lend and pretend is one other term <laughs> I, I heard. Uh, do you think that patience is, is wearing thin now? And what kinds of assets, if you had to take a guess, are likely to be foreclosed upon this year? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine creates some knock-on here and some more pressure around some of those assets that were, were already pressured. I will start by saying that the difference between where we are today versus 2008, as an example, is that the discipline in the borrowing community is far different today than what it was then. The average loan to, loan to value in our portfolio is about 67%. We don't have borrowers, our institutional quality borrowers with strong operating partners showing up asking for 85% leverage, which was the norm in 2007. Plus, over 70% of what we do is new acquisition financing, so our borrowers have fresh cash in the, de in the deals. So what does it mean when it comes to forbearance for us under those circumstances? Well, generally, they're low leverage going in. Two is we back deep-pocketed, high-quality borrowers that generally are willing to continue to contribute capital to protect their equity. So from a forbearance perspective, a strategy we employed was to allow in hotels, particularly, let's say, six months of forbearance, and our borrowers put up another six months of interest into an account. So overall, maybe it increased our loan to value by 1%, 1.5%. Now, the great news about that, too, as being a thoughtful lender around that is increasing my basis by 1% doesn't increase my probability of default or loss by almost anything to the extent the borrower still has that amount of cash in the deal and has also chosen to re-up uh, with more equity in the deal. They're there to protect their asset. Another interesting statistic of all the forbearance we did, close to 50% of it has already been repaid. That's an interesting statistic showing you that one, we have strong borrowers. Two is that the assets are rebounding. Okay, so but doesn't really answer your question. So will the lenders get tired of forbearing? What will happen? There's a couple of danger zones, right? One is to the extent that that asset was more highly levered going in or the borrower is giving up on the asset, but just saying, give me another five percentage, percentage points of leverage because I need you, lender, to fund my problem. Lenders, the discipline of my peers is very good uh, in the lending community. And I think what you'll find around those situations is that the lenders won't continue to forbear. They'll take their knocks, they'll foreclose, and there's enough liquidity in the system of capital seeking quote-unquote distress that the probability of those lenders getting out at par or somewhere in that realm is fairly high. So yes, to your point, particularly with some of the increased pressure associated with the Russia-Ukraine issues, 
it would lead one to believe that hospitality would be probably asset class number one at risk for further forbearance and potential foreclosure. The other thing that is important, though, is for many line lenders, lenders who leverage themselves through warehouse lines or otherwise, to the extent there's a default under the loan itself, that triggers a default under the warehouse line requiring the lender to remove that asset off of the warehouse line. Okay, Now, if that happens, uh, which it very well could if there's enough pressure, you will see more investment sales of hospitality distress in the market because the lenders are generally not in the business of owning the real estate. They will look to move them, look to get liquidity while they can, and to the extent there are any defaults or losses, they'll take them at this particular point. So to play through on your question, with some of the pressures brought on by Russia and Ukraine, hospitality would be the first asset class that would feel pressure here. Gas prices over $6 a gallon in California or over $4.20, $4.30, the highest in four decades on average. The increased pressure on food, the increased pressure on you know, cost of living is going to result in the consumer, particularly in the middle market, choosing not to travel or take that extra vacation that they had, notwithstanding the fact that pre the war, we were talking about record household net worth, record savings that would have painted a very different picture. So in, in the note of caution, and to answer your question, that's where I think there could be some fallout coming out towards the second, second part of this year. We're now dealing with the highest inflation in 40 years, more than 7% in February. How does that factor into your outlook? So we are only US-based in terms of our lending, our lending base. So, so I won't comment on Europe, and there's far better qualified people to talk about that, that than me. But looking at the US, firstly, we don't know how this is going to play out. But there are a few things that we can look at and a framework through which I like to look at this issue. So firstly, 7.9% was the print for February, the highest in 40 years, right? Many economists are talking now about 10% inflation and others are talking about stagflation. You know, these are nasty words. So for us, that framework we got to think about, but we can't wake up every day and assume that we're going to enter a stagflationary environment, right? Okay, so, but with elevated inflation, also comes the prospect of more rapid increase in interest rates, more rapid increase in interest rates has its implications too. But I think there are sort of four dimensions through which I look at this issue currently. One, is this a liquidity issue potentially, or a credit issue? And if it's a liquidity issue, does it become a credit issue down the line? And the second part of this really are the public versus private markets and how they will behave and how that impacts real estate values. We are a private lender. Our sources of capital are private. We do not use the securities market either through the CLO market or uh, through CMBS in any way to leverage our positions. So one would see from a lender like, like us being pretty sticky around our spreads and the cost of our capital. Okay. If this, uh, so, uh, and so those lenders that are levered through the CLO market, we've seen real movement in the bond spreads, and that's going to impact ultimately the cost of funds to the borrowers. On the liquidity side, will it be that the buyers of real estate take a pause? Will it be that we see a lot of fallout 
an investment sales contract that are currently not hard but are under contract? Don't know. Will, it, will we see lenders reprice risk on deals that are currently under contract? The answer is absolutely yes, to the extent that a borrower is borrowing in the SASB market or the CMBS market. We've seen some material spread widening. Does that then knock on effect, change the price for the seller? The answer is yes. Does that mean that contracts will fall out? Some will fall out and others will go ahead and, and get done. So from my perspective, I look at it liquidity versus credit. On the credit side, you have to ask yourself, well, to the extent that we are in this hyperinflationary environment, and as I mentioned, I think the mid-market's going to feel this the most, does this become a credit issue? Or does this become an issue where the consumer doesn't spend? Does this, and then you have to ask yourself, which assets are those that are going to get hit first in that equation? So this is going to play, uh, um, play out. I think that on the inflation side and the interest rate side, the rising interest rates, you know, look, I read the same stuff from great economists and folks that really study these issues. But historically, it's been approximately a 0.5 correlation to uh, rising cap rates to rising interest rates. And, you know, that is material. So then how do you offset that? Well, we have strong, strong job growth. We have historically high savings rates. We have rental growth across the board as a broad comment, okay? These things are going to grow the top line. So notwithstanding the fact that the middle of the page is going to increase with inflation, wage rates, and otherwise, we've seen strong top-line growth. One last point that I would make, though. As a lender of scale like Acor is, we are still sharpshooters. We are still highly selective. And I think when you talk about these kind of inflationary environments, the assets that we are more likely to finance are those that demonstrate inelastic demand characteristics. So to the extent price goes up, demand stays roughly the same. And, you know, if you're financing those assets, you will see top line growth that will exceed inflation and you will get NOI growth to the bottom line. So we're hyper focused on those as issues. How does global instability impact your approach? You know, this week, the president said that the importation of Russian oil is now banned. Gas prices, he already said, are going to go up. They were already going up. Russia is also a large supplier of metals and materials used in construction. How does that play out in the real estate market? You know, I think that's the big question. And it's, it's rightly framed the way in which you framed it, because we're all trying to figure on the knock-ons. So, you know, clearly inflation, so cost of goods and services increase. We have at any one point in time, roughly $3 billion of construction the loans managed by 10 people in my construction team. And, you know, the idea of inflated goods and services is a big issue to the extent contracts are not bought out. So how do we factor in that risk? Well, firstly, it starts with the quality of the borrower, the quality of their balance sheet and their track records. Secondly, we are protected through a series of covenants in our loans, like rebalancing provisions that rebalance the loans to the extent that materials of costs go up. Um, thirdly is the business plan. And obviously I've mentioned the quality of the borrower already. So within that framework and our loan to values, generally our low loan to values, because our borrowers are not trying to push the leverage spectrums that we have many protections built in on the equity side. How is it going to feel? Well, Certainly, you have to believe that to the extent that there is inflation pushing these things up, that your protector is that you have an asset that you can increase the price of the product, ultimately. That's the only way that as a borrower, 
you will be able to protect yourself. And that comes back to the inelastic demand characteristics, whether it's a hotel, whether it's an apartment building, and so on. Now, the good news is, is that particularly in apartments, as an example, we've seen wage growth, we've seen prosperity, and we've seen people prove that they will spend more money for nice housing. It's a, it's a, it's a basically Maslow hierarchy of needs. It's way up there. I think it's the discretionary spend in the middle market that is more at risk, okay? So we'll see how this plays out with in the middle market leisure, as an example. At the high end, the luxury sector, we've seen folks pay more for a hotel room than any of us in our wildest imaginations could have, could have imagined. And I don't see that sector slowing down anytime soon. It's almost hard to know where to worry about next as a consumer. Well, look, look at the Wall Street Journal yesterday had, had a study that said that the average consumer is going to see a $3,000 a year increase in their gas prices. This is the average consumer across the board, just driving to work, taking your kids to school. Now that's a $3,000 a year after tax money coming out of a family that might make fifty dollars or $60,000 a year, gross, 40 net. So call it 10% of their income is now going to be allocated just to increased prices at, at the gas pump, let alone food uh, and other things that prices are, are escalating. So there's no question in my mind that there's going to be increased pressure, particularly on middle America. And we have to see how that plays out. That's going to be an area of concern. That's Warren DeHaan. He's the co-CEO of Acor Capital. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.